Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And every week, I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Representative Sharice Davids, where I ask her, how are you making history in Congress? Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm so excited. I can't stand it. We have one of my very favorite people of all time. Welcome to the show, Congresswoman Sharice Davids, who is representing Kansas's third district since 2019. You won re-election last year. Yes, yes, yes. I also just have to say, I am flooded with such happy memories of going into your office in 2018 with literally Michelle Kwan, the most decorated American figure skater <laughs> of all time. And we like we literally went and knocked on doors like we like. I had so much fun meeting you and you have the most amazing team and I'm so happy to virtually see you today. I know. I'm excited too. I'm really glad that we're getting the chance to do this. And can I say something about when you guys came to visit the office? Yes. So my, one of my besties, very best friends, he like literally quit his job and moved to Kansas. His name's Jason to help on my campaign. Like he quit a big law job to come help on my campaign. And he was not, in the office when you all arrived. So he walked in and you were, and you guys were there and he was like, Oh my God. And, <laughs> and then we were all dancing around and jumping around. I think you were trying to teach us. A by single, I was, yeah. I wanted you to get, I wanted you to get your waltz jump. I think. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, as one does. As one it's does. okay. I mean, it's, it's, you do have a great rink in your, I think there's a really good ice skating rink in your mm-hmm. district. Yeah, I think the one in Shawnee. I don't know if I don't know where you, which places you went to because you were in the area get, for a while. We were there for a hot minute, um, which was so much fun, and I had so much fun meeting those people and the constituents of the third district of Kansas are just such incredible people, as evidenced uh, in the last few years. I'm just like so proud. But you have an amazing project. I devoured it. Thank gosh, it didn't take me. Um, Super duper long. I just love a children's book. They're fun. Mm-hmm, I need them. Mm-hmm. But congratulations on Sharice's big voice. First book, first children's book. But this book can be enjoyed by everyone. I loved it. I also just mm-hmm. wanted to say one more thing that's really major that I left out in the intro, which is uh-huh. when you were sworn into the 116th Congress, you became uh-huh. one of the first two Native American women to serve in Congress and the first openly LGBTQIA plus person to represent Kansas, which is... I, I wanted to mention that because it is so um, incredible. And that's part of what I think is so cool about this children's book, Teresa's Big Voice, A Native Kid Becomes a Congresswoman. It begs the question, what were you like when you were a kid? Like, did you know you were going to turn out to be a congresswoman? Did oh, you no. want to be? Not at all. I, I, no. I don't know what I thought when I was a kid, actually, about what I would be like as an adult. Um which maybe meant I was present. I don't know. But I talked a lot. I had a lot of energy. Almost immediately in the book, uh, I go into how I talk a lot. Uh, I talked a lot then. I talk a lot now. And um, frankly, I don't know how my I don't know how my mom handled how much energy I had. She must just be the most patient person. Also, just I was obsessed with Bruce Lee. Um, I was a picky eater then. I'm a picky eater now. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, but I, I think I probably was like more f- fun when I was little than I. Who's you know? not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not jaded as an adult. 
I feel like I should say that. You do have such an optimistic can-do spirit, which is, I think, mm-hmm. one thing that people love about you. Um, but going back to, like, baby kid Sharice, like, what were... So Bruce Lee was an in- interest. What was, like, what were some of your other, like, just, you know, to me, it was obviously Michelle Kwan. It was figure skating. It was gymnastics. What was your version of figure skating and gymnastics? Not that I could do either of those things, but I was obsessed with them. So, like, what were your yeah. biggest interests growing up? Um... The martial arts stuff really, I li- I watched all the martial arts movies. I would run around like dressed up and, you know, I would f- find black belts and white shirts and put them on and put headbands on um, and, and just run around like punching and kicking. Um, and then also m- my mom was very much into tennis. And so I remember watching a lot of tennis when I was growing up. And then um, when I got to high school, I started playing tennis and, and I, I really like tennis. Um, It's like, it's expensive when you have to like in the winter time, if you're going to play or the rackets can get expensive too, but um, it's just something that I like, you know, and then of course we watched a lot of, like professional women's tennis. Uh, oh, I love I tennis. I have to ask you who your favorite player was. Um, I'm more of a, a what do you call it? Like a, a rivalry type of person. Ooh, who was your so, rivalry? So, you know, Steffi Groff and Martina, uh, Martina Navratilova. Um, I was like uh, a Steffi Graf, Monica Sellis. I love oh, that I was about, moment. And then I was going to say that too. Um, that double-handed forehand was epic on Monica Sellis. Major. I also loved Martina Hingis. Um, yeah. I did. I really liked her until she did that underhand serve in the French Open. And I was like, girl, get it together. Come on. So in the book, you revisit the younger version of yourself. What was that like to do that, knowing now who you become? Was that was that cathartic? Was it healing? Was it a little like was it kind of like surreal? What was that like? Well, first of all, it's it's really interesting to to do this sort of thing um, with someone else. So. When I say someone else, I both mean Nancy, who helped with, um, she's a creative writer and like knows how to do a bunch of this stuff. And um, so talking with her about like the story arc and which stories to include, but also lots of conversations with my mom, you know, and my, when you're a kid, you remember things differently than your parents do. And so it was really interesting. That part was really interesting because there were some stories that my mom and I hadn't really kind of like talked about, like what her impression of what was coming out of that uh, meant. And um, so there were some stories, actually it was my mom's idea to include the story about the, um, there's a story about when one of my classmates got really upset and ran out of the, ran out of the classroom. And um, because of my gift of gab, you know, I end up uh, talking with them and and um, and it, it's kind of like a learning moment. But it was my mom's idea to include that one because she was able to see as an adult like, oh, that pro- like around that time. And then after we talked about it, I was, I was thinking, she's so right. And 
I think in a lot of ways that part was interesting to to talk to my mom about what my progression as a as a young person was. And then I was also thinking, so I am not um I'm not shy about talking about how important it is for us to get rid of this stigma around mental and behavioral health care access and and um and so I have uh, gone in, like had counseling or therapy or some version of that, uh, over the years. And, um, one of the things I was thinking about is how probably much more impactful thinking about those like little Sharice, like what was little Sharice thinking and doing and how did it feel? Because, um, so often we don't learn those skills and when we're little kids, you know, and, so I, I, I've been thinking about how interesting it is to think, oh, if I had learned this coping mechanism or how to, how to recognize feelings when I was at that age, I wonder how big of a difference it would have made. Um, and that's not, you know, that's not all stuff in the book, but there's a little bit of that, you know, recognizing that um, I was really intentional about including the story about you know, being at school and, and my, and classmates saying, what are you? And I think that's probably something that quite a few people hear and not just when you're a little kid. Uh, it's harder to in, in, interpret, I think when you're, uh, when you're little, but, um, you know, making sure that people can see that, um, those kinds of, those kinds of questions, there's, there are things that, happen after that. It's a cascading thing. It, it impacts you. It lands on you in a different mm. way. And, um, and sometimes like it leads to, I mean, that's like a question of what are you is almost like, are like a question of humanity. Right. Yeah. And so, um, so I was really, I really wanted to make sure that was like one of the stories that I definitely wanted to make sure was in there because, um, it can help sometimes when you see that you're not the only person who experiences something, even if it's like slightly different or whatever. And then making sure that to say like that that's actually not a very nice question to ask somebody. Yeah. Um, so you got to talk to your mom a lot with this, which I think is so special in those conversations with your mom. Did anything come up of like when she first like was like, I think my kid is gonna go on and really be like, do something major. Or did you ever think about like, when was the first time when being in service, being in public service, like ever crossed your mind as a possibility? And did your mom ever suggest that? No, she didn't. That I can remember. That doesn't mean she didn't. It just means that if she did, I don't remember it. My mom was stationed at Fort Leonard Wood, which is in uh, South Central Missouri. Uh, when I was younger, she used she used to joke all the time. I joined the army and thought I'd see the world, and we were mostly in Kansas and Missouri. Um, <laughs> and um, we lived, and it was about an hour, a little over an hour, to Springfield, Missouri, where um, what's now Missouri State University. It used to be Southwest Missouri State University, and we would go watch the Lady Bears play basketball. And it wasn't until like well into adulthood, this was only a few years ago that my mom told me that part of the reason she would take me to those basketball games was not just because she enjoyed basketball, we both did, but because she thought it would be helpful for me to see uh, women in college and women who 
are like playing sports and, and being athletic because I was very athletic. And, um, and she thought it would be a way for me to just see examples of people going to college. If in case that's what I, if I wanted to go to college that I would have seen examples of that. And, um, because I'm the first person in my family to go to college, but I call myself a major former first generation college student. Cause my mom got her bachelor's degree about four years ago now. Yes. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, she's a pretty determined person. Um, so I think that, um, I think that my mom's approach, this actually would be a good question for me to ask her. So I'm going to leave this interview with a question for my mom, um, is that she was more of somebody who supported ideas that I had versus saying, oh, you should do this. You should try this. You should want to mm. do that. Which maybe is part of why I have, why I even realized that like we get to decide what success means for ourselves. Mm. You know, I remember there were all kinds, I, I joke about all the like wild ideas I've had over the course of my life. I remember one time, well, I asked my mom when I was little, if, um, do you think I could be a professional tennis player? And her response was, if you practice enough, like it, you would have to work really hard, but it's possible. Um, do you think I could play professional basketball? Cause the WNBA started. So keep in mind, I suck at basketball. <laughs> and my mom's response wasn't you suck at basketball. It was, you know, you'd have, you, you would really have to put in a lot of work. And, um, uh, I think I, I think we talked about like being a point guard or something like you, I'm so short though, but if I'm, but if I'm a point guard, then maybe that's possible. And she's like, there, there's some pretty short people who have become like very good point guards. And so of course the first thing I did was go into the garage. We lived on post in um, Fort Leavenworth and I was in the garage, just like practicing dribbling. And, and I did that for a little while. And then, and then I probably came up with some other thing that I wanted to practice, <laughs> but she never, she never shut down any of my ideas, even though like now as an adult, I like that. That's not, a, it wasn't, it wasn't for me a realistic thing to be like a professional basketball player, but my mom didn't tell me that wasn't realistic. She let me figure out whether or not it was going to be a realistic. And for me, it wasn't, you know, and I think that that's a really I've always felt very fortunate to have that kind of experience um, because a lot of, a lot of people don't get that, you know, a lot of people get told and we get told by society, all kinds of stuff. Right. But we, a lot of people don't, um, don't get to have an experience where you say, maybe I can do this thing. Uh, maybe this will make me happy or I, I might thrive in this thing. So often you just get shut down. So she let you explore your possibility. That's oh, so yeah. beautiful. That's so important. And I mean, I think it goes back to that idea that like our parents are, you know, we're half of each of our parents. We're half of who raised us. Or if you're raised in a single parent household, like you are so much of who raised you. And so having her allow you to explore that possibility, it's like, obviously you're a majorly hard worker and you're an incredible person, but your mom helped you get there. And so that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I love that sentiment. And that's just amazing. One thing that you've mentioned in this book process that I was just like, what about is 
that only 1% of children's books published in the United States feature Native American or Indigenous characters. And one thing that we learned about um, on Getting Curious with one of our past uh, guests, her name is Dr. Elizabeth Rule. I love her so much. She's amazing. She, she actually, we need to hook you up with her because she did this thing in D.C. for Native Americans where it's like you can go around to all of Washington, D.C. and you can like oh, yeah. see was, all these different like, sites. Heard, I know who she is. Yeah. She basically says, you know, that for so many people that are advocating for their tribes and their nations in D.C. that are like representing their tribes in D.C., they feel, you know, really homesick and kind of lost. And and so that's part of why she put together this app, because you can go around D.C. and you can like get more involved in like what your nation's like history was in D.C. And um, but her my biggest takeaway from working with her and interviewing her is that like Native Americans, contemporary Native Americans are thriving. There's so many different communities and so many different nations like doing the most being amazing. Um, and that's just something that I think, especially like in school, you know, we maybe it's like a paragraph or two. It's just not something that we really, you know, dive into. And so what does it mean to you that you are, I mean, that was kind of a twofold thing, but as far as the 1% of children's books published in the U.S. featuring Native American or Indigenous characters, what does that mean to you to be, to be changing that statistic? It's wild. Um, it's it's interesting because it's the thing that pops into my head when so I get I've been asked quite a bit like what inspired you to do this um and I and you know me being the like lawyer and like analytical person I am I'm like well there's two parts of that there's the idea and then there's the inspiration and the drive you know and I think that that fact of there not being uh, children's books that are reflective of um, the the broader diversity of experiences that we that we have in this country, of course, historically and now, is I mean that's enough of a reason to do all kinds of stuff. It's not. Mm. It's not. It wasn't the. It wasn't the impetus for the idea, but it was certainly like, what if we did a kids book? And then you start to find out only 1% of characters in children's books. There's whole sections. Uh, there's children's libraries, children's books libraries. And in the whole library, there's only 1% of the characters. That's not even 1% of the books. That's like 1% of the characters in the books. Mm. That's enough of a reason to want to do that, right? And um, And in some ways, I kind of feel like Well, I don't know how I'm gonna. I don't know how to process what any of that means, um, and maybe I will over time. Even even just like Deb and I getting elected in 2018, like what the impl- the implications of it more broadly for uh, Native people or Native women. I don't really even know how to process that because um, it's just it. Because for me, I'm just like going and doing. I'm like putting one foot in front of the next every single day. Um, I imagine you probably feel this, this, a similar thing. You're like, oh, I have this idea. I want to do this thing. And I'm putting one foot in front of the next. And then people come up to you and they're like, you're inspiring me to be the person that I actually am. And, um, and that, that's a hard thing to process. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't hope know that how you it feel. feels. I, <laughs> I, I hope that I, I, I in my own way, I, I do know what you're saying, but I sure hope that 
there are some times when you can, um, I mean, I'm obviously not a Native American person, but when I think about um, Native American folks, young people who I've talked to, I mean, I'm just like covered in chills. I think that you're doing the, and, and I guess the other thing I would say is like, sometimes I feel like I don't like to process some of the amazing things that I've done because I feel like if I stopped to really realize how amazing it is, like it might like distract me and like throw me off mm. my ability to just keep, you know, doing but, what I'm doing. Cause yeah, cause this is our life. It doesn't seem that exceptional to us because we're in here doing this work and, and, you know, trying to, to get to where we're going. And so it, but I, I think for both of us, I sure hope that we do because it's always easier to appreciate someone else's path more than it mm-hmm. is your own. Because it's like, oh, mm-hmm. am I being like cocky or arrogant or whatever? But mm-hmm. you are doing it, girl. This is so incredible. That's- and so I, I wanted to ask about the book. What have what do you hope that readers will take away from from this story? Um. So I think there's a couple of things. It's it's interesting because it's you know, a, a native kid becomes a congresswoman is like because that's in the title. I imagine that some people might think, um, oh, this will be a, this this book will be uh, aimed at inspiring people to run for public office, and that's that's not, not what it is. It happens to be that that's what ended up happening with my journey. But I am, but I think that this book, or at least I hope that when people read it, they see that um, all of us have this like unique journey, even if our experiences, you know, might be sometimes similar um, or even the same. I think a lot of us, if not all of us know what it's like to uh, feel invisible or to feel small um, or like, like we're never heard. And I think that what are you can be the kind of question that makes you feel invisible, mm. you know, or, um, uh, or like getting in trouble for talking too much, which is like part of your, like that just really part of my personality, right? That can be a way of like squishing people or making them feel small or making them feel like something's wrong with them. Yeah. And there's not. You know, and and I think that my hope is that just even by seeing more stories of people who have um, what I I mean, I think my my story is actually like pretty ordinary. Like it's not it's not uncommon to be raised by a single parent. It's not uncommon to be like a chatty little kid. It's not uncommon to um, I mean, unfortunately, I think it's not uncommon to be asked, what are you? You Yeah. And. Um, and I think that, um, or at least I hope that, that if, if kids or anybody who's reading the book can see like, oh, actually, yeah, I, I know what that feels like that happened to me or, you know, like, yeah, I think sometimes just having that little bit of validation of your experience can, it, it can just help so much. Um, because then you don't feel as alone. You recognize that like, you know, all of our journeys have ups and downs or twists and turns. Um, we all have doubters and, and then, you know, I'm, again, I was like pretty intentional about making sure to recognize that 
we doubt ourselves sometimes. I know I certainly doubt myself. And I think it's important to acknowledge that so that so that none of us feel alone in this experience. And I, I hope that people, I hope that people take that away from it, that none of us are alone in this wild experience of life. That is so beautiful. One thing that Brene Brown talks about is this idea of shame resilience. And Mm -hmm. that's really like what we have to do in life is like, you have to become like resilient to shame because whether it's from society or family or even ourselves, like this, like shame can really derail us. So becoming resilient to shame. One thing that really came up for me as you were describing that, one of my challenges with writing Peanut Goes for the Gold is like, how do you decide how to talk about some of these tougher issues with a younger audience. I wouldn't necessarily say what I'm about to say in a, in a children's book, but one thing, what are you? That is such a dehumanizing question because it's like, I'm human. Like mm-hmm. I'm a person just like you are. I remember being, um, like 16 in a grocery store in my hometown and this little girl being in front of me with her mom and this little girl turning around and looking at me and then looking back at her mom and saying, why does he talk like a girl? And why does he Mm. act like a girl? And like, but saying that that loud in front of me to the mom. And so just, especially when you're a teenager and everything feels like huge, but but it's these dehumanizing things where it's like, I just think culturally we don't, really, we are not taught to like humanize each other. Mm -hmm. Like we're not Mm -hmm. taught to like hold people in closer and to like be more loving and more compassionate. And so I think that's one thing about the book and your story that I think is beautiful is that it's really about humanizing and and Mm -hmm. loving ourselves and realizing our potential and our possibility. And I just think that's so incredible. And I just, I love this book and I love that you decided to do it. I think that that idea of, of humanizing people um, is something that it, in, in conversation, it seems so simple, right? Like, oh, just recognize people as humans and treat them as such with the respect and dignity that they, that they deserve as a human. In practice, it can be really, really hard and I think that anytime we, anytime we can get just like a little bit of practice at that, it, it pays, like it pays dividends in the long run. You know, anytime we can um, recognize that, um, that something that we're saying or doing might be dehumanizing to somebody and, and catch ourselves and, and think like, oh, I, like, it's not my intention to make someone else feel less than. And, and if, we, if we have more practice at making sure that we're, we're always trying to, um, to, to be respectful, um, to recognize people's humanity, then, then we'll be more likely to, to um, avoid those kind of situations in the, in the future or, and recognize when it happens to other people. Like... Um, when you were, when you were telling the story about the, the 16 year old you standing in, uh, uh, you know, the, the grocery store and someone saying something that like, you know, it's a little kid who's already like thinking in, uh, in a binary, in a gender binary. Um, it's a parent who 
who has the opportunity in that moment to say, oh, um, actually, like, let's let's figure out a way to ask a question that, that you're curious about without maybe hurting somebody else's feelings. And and then for the like young person who, you know, as 16, you don't know how to navigate that kind of thing. And it can like not only is it hurtful, but then it gets internalized. And then in the future, it's one of those things that pops up, you know, someone says something and, and, and whoosh, you're right back to being 16 and someone saying something in a, a grocery store. And it's just like, there's so many places there where if, if we learn how to just slow down a little bit and recognize people's humanity, we might be able to avoid some of those some of those really hurtful times. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Okay, so you pres- you represent Kansas's third district. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about who lives there? What are the issues that matter most to voters? Where is Kansas's third district? I think there's a lot of listeners here who would be very interested to know about that. Yeah. Um. So the Kansas third is in the Kansas City metro area. And then for folks who aren't familiar um, with which uh, rectangle state Kansas is, uh, we uh, we border Missouri. And um, so Kansas City, uh, the Kansas City metro area sits on the border of Kansas and Missouri. And um, for folks who have spent any time there, like yourself, uh, you you probably know that when you're driving around, if you're not from there, you wouldn't know if you're on the Kansas side or the Missouri side. Um, but the Kansas, usually when people say Kansas City, they, they're thinking of Kansas City, Missouri. Um, but there's also on the Kansas side, and this is the district that I get the chance to represent out here in D.C., um, there's two full counties in the district, Wyandotte County and Johnson County. Johnson County essentially has um, what folks would think of as the suburbs of Kansas, of the Kansas City metro area. And then Wyandotte County has Kansas City, Kansas, which is its own um, its own city with its own unique history and um, uh, even what I would say is like uh, character and culture of, of, the, of Kansas City, Kansas. And then, um, and then there's a little bit of Miami County, which is where you start to think of probably what people might imagine more of Kansas. It's like uh, it starts to be more rural. There's more agriculture um, in that direction. And um, I so I got elected in 2018, along with, you know, the most diverse freshman class ever to be elected to to Congress. And um, it was really cool to be able it was cool as somebody from Kansas to be able to be part of that, because I think I think there are a lot of misconceptions about Kansas. I think that. we have a lot more, we have a lot more diversity than people would maybe imagine. Um, and, and particularly in the, you know, in the third district, we've, we have this like hotbed of entrepreneurial activity. Um, we've got, uh, we've got some great public schools and we're still recovering from the damage that Sam Brownback did as our governor. Uh, you know, he, he, the, the damage that his policies did 
to our public school system. And as somebody who went to public school, uh, you know, I, I started off. And then I when I went to college, I, I have an associate's degree. It took me four years to get that. I have a bachelor's degree. It took me four years to get that. But both of those were public universities and um, community college. And so I, I think that a lot of folks m- might not, just m- might not realize how uh, vibrant the area is. And, you know, some of that is just, by nature of how our how our uh, country is built, people think of cities and what you were saying earlier. You know, I think that um, I think it's a really interesting. I think it's a really interesting and nice place to to live and to visit. So, folks who haven't been to Kansas City um, or to to Kansas in general, you should come visit us. So we're gonna be like lightning round adjacent. Okay, um, lightning round. What? Because uh, I know you got stuff to do, honey. So what are the issues in Kansas City's 3rd District that the constituents are most concerned about? Like, what mm-hmm. are the issues that you hear about the most? So, of course, a lot of things have been exacerbated because of the pandemic. Um, healthcare has been, like, access to healthcare, fear about, um, you know, access to healthcare and um, getting to and from places and that sort of thing. Um, I'll, I'll say for, for sure too, the mental and behavioral health, like this year has been traumatic. This has been a super traumatic time for everybody. And then you stack on top of things like the, uh, racial justice conversations that have, have been going on and people have been experiencing, but are now part of a mainstream conversation and it's happening in a lot more spaces than it used to. But the pandemic stacked on top of that, you know, for a lot of people, they were already feeling the trauma of that stuff. And then you stack on top of it, the trauma from the pandemic. People um, are are definitely talking a lot more about mental and behavioral health. And then uh, infrastructure is uh, very important to a lot of folks. And then tackling the climate crisis. You know, we have this thing called Climate Action KC that is, uh, it's a, a, a group of stakeholders, it's local electeds, it's community members, it's activists, it's advocates. And um, they're doing a lot of work around that. And, and it's because so many people in our area care about that. Um, education is a really big issue. And some of that is because of the, you know, the failed Brownback tax experiment. Um, and then, and then I would say, you know, just like how we get to a thriving economy and grow jobs after like coming out of this, coming out of this economic crisis that was caused by a public health crisis. Uh, those are probably the biggest things. So this is like a massive question I'm about to ask you. So like, just think about, so just that's a problem, but I'm asking it. One of the things that I've been most concerned about that I've talked a lot about on this podcast is that like after 2020, the election, there was such a schism in our party between centrists and progressives and this like mudslinging match that was like post November pre runoff in the Senate that it really pitted a lot of like centrist Democrats versus progressives. But you occupy this place where you, you won your second term. I think you've been incredibly effective. And, and I think one thing that we learned is that like, it's all about for Congress people and people that are, you know, you're in federal office, but you're, you're serving a, you know, a district. Mm-hmm. It's about local issues and staying focused mm-hmm. on local issues. Mm-hmm. But how can we do that without 
how do we do this? How do we bring the center and the left together? So I actually think there's two things I think about this. One is I, the, I think the reason that Democrats have better policy is because of all of these conversations. It's because we go into uncomfortable topics and spaces and conversations where we, you know, like if you, it's a big tent. People always say, oh, it's a big tent party. If you look at the way that um, we approach issues, it's with an eye toward how do we actually make things better? Mm. It's not just, it's not just how do we win an election? It's how are we going to make things better for the people that we are here to serve? And if that's really the the goal, then it's messy to get, it's messy to get to that place. So I guess, and maybe this is because of my um, having had the chance to go to law school. I don't, I don't think of us having policy disagreements and like, you know, I mean, there are ways to have conversations um, that, that might be more productive or whatever. Um, and, and we do that in like in real life, but I don't think of disagreements about policies as being a bad thing. You're so right. Because you know what? My therapist always says like our relationships grow grow closer through disruption, like through having conversations, we actually become closer. I think where my fear comes in is that like you just, because even when that happened, it's like MSNBC made it into such a big deal. I feel like it was a really big deal on Twitter. Like, but maybe I just watched too much MSNBC and too much Twitter. And it's actually really good that we're having these conversations. So it's actually a really good thing. Yeah. And I think that, um, yeah, I, I definitely. So that's one piece is like, I don't actually think us disagreeing about stuff is, is a bad thing. It's how we get to better policy. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, when I'm when I'm showing up, if I'm disagreeing with somebody on something, it's because what I'm trying to do is advocate for the district that I was sent to Washington, D.C. to represent. I'm I'm out here to represent, to advocate for, to push for policies that are going to be good for the people in the third district, for the people in Kansas, and then ultimately for our entire country. And I think that so I so I, I guess I just. I guess I just don't accept that if we're not out here holding hands and singing all the time, that that means that things are bad. It just means that we're trying to figure out what what the best path forward is. Um, Yeah. And then I think and then I think so much of it is making sure that at least for me, um, the the, the cool thing about Congress is that you know, there are 435 seats in Congress and every we're all human. We're all different. And, and everybody shows up. Some people show up and they're like, if I like my goal in life is to get this bill passed, you know, and some people show up and it's more of a portfolio of things like I want to work on X, Y and Z issues or I want to serve on this committee or um, I really want to I really want to be out in front taking the lead on issues of, and you can insert healthcare, climate change, like making sure that, um, uh, 
making sure that our infrastructure system is is modern and and we're leaving something for our great grandchildren to thrive on, you know, like it just every single one of us is different. We all show up with different priorities and different ideas. And of course, we're not going to agree on everything. But the point is not for everybody to constantly agree on every single thing. It's for us to work all that out and then come out on the other side with some legislation that's going to be good for as many people as possible. Okay, so now what we're going to do, because I um, love talking with you so much, and but you literally are like representing like tons of constituents in D.C. and you got me, you got people to see, you got things to do. So we're rounding third base. Okay, are you ready? Yes. Are you, okay. What was your proudest moment from your first term? I have to say two different things. It was That's really okay. cool to it was really cool to preside over the floor during the violence against women um, reauthorization, um, and then because we got some MMIW uh, uh, murdered and missing Indigenous women and people let uh, amendments in there. Deb and I did, and then the second one is probably like the Equality Act, even though it even though like Mitch McConnell, we can just. But we're reintroducing both of those into this Congress to repass. Yeah, and then we've already pa- Yeah, and we've done that out of the House. So hopefully we'll see movement on those. But the Equality Act, I the reason that I love it, even though even though I, like I would love it more if we got it passed. We have a president now who would sign it. Is is the message that it sends that there's like a whole body of decision makers in the federal government who's who have said it is not okay to discriminate against people who are part of the LGBTQIA plus community. What is your top priority in office right now? Ooh, right now in this very moment, it's an infrastructure package. Oh, fuck. I almost didn't want you to say that because I had so many questions about it, but I have to move ah, on. Oh my God. It's so we good. Should, I love it. You're going to do it. We could do a whole podcast about infrastructure or maybe we could do an instagram live about the infrastructure thing so that people could be more like engaged there's so many questions about it okay what are your broader hopes what are your biggest hopes for your second term i want us to get an infrastructure package done that is like has a lot of a lot of provisions in it for sustainability resiliency tackling climate change growing jobs growing green jobs um and we got to get a we got to get the for the people act or hr1 passed it cuts to the core of our democracy and like oh, addressing that, some of the foundational this is voting rights right? rights yes this is voting rights this is big money in politics this is this is like cleaning up the corruption like all that stuff we got to address that what do you think would most surprise listeners about how things work in washington dc from legislation to lunch breaks it's like high school <sighs> Makes sense. What do you think is the most effective way for listeners to have their voices heard in Congress? Hopefully you have a representative that is listening to you. Uh, Write, call, email their offices. The numbers are all online. And this is our final question. So you don't have to lighten around with this one. What recommendations would you have for listeners looking to get more involved in their communities through electoral politics or other forms of service? Hmm. That's a really good question. You know, one of the things that I think a lot about is how how many different ways there are to be of service to your community. And I think part of the reason that I'm that I think that is because I spend so much time talking about 
running for office. You know, lots of folks like, and of course, like it's natural. People will say, what are your recommendations for people who want to run for office? But there are so many people who literally like they couldn't think of anything further from desirable than running for office. (laughs) People hate public speaking. They don't want to be out in front. They don't want their name on everything, which I totally get. Um, So I always I always think if if you can find something that you care about and it can be electoral politics, it can be just the policy around that. Running for office is absolute and absolutely a way to do it. And if you have the thought, I think I want to run for office, you should do it. Because especially if you're if you are uh, someone who doesn't fit into kind of the mold of what people think um, a, a, a senator or a congressperson or a city council person looks like um, or what kind of background they come from or something, um, you should absolutely do it if you're thinking about it. But also, if it's not your thing and you want to be engaged, you can. There are so many ways to be helpful on a campaign. You talked about knocking on doors earlier. Go knock on doors for somebody. And then if you don't want to interact with people in person, there's so much going on behind the scenes. Data management, like keeping track of the money, like helping with the website, helping with the social. There's all kinds of stuff. You could get a little group of people together, figure out who you like and just have like a little army of people who retweet every single thing that some, you know, elected official that you love says or does. Um, So there's all kinds of stuff like that. And then I would also encourage people to think about the ways to, to be helpful that might not be electoral politics, but will necessarily have an impact on that. You know, things like, um, just like other types of civic engagement and community building, you know, I think one of the ways that we offset disinformation is community building because folks, um, so many folks don't feel like they have anybody to trust. And the way we build up trust is by building relationships and um, electoral politics isn't, it can be a method of building a relationship, but there are lots of other ways too, you know, and, and that could be nonprofit work. It could be, uh, it, it could be book clubs where people are like learning about things so that they can then share it with, with their family members and, um, schoolmates or, you know, coworkers or whatever. And then there's also stuff like if you have the means to help other people to, um, uh, to do stuff that's not necessarily like I'm, I'm showing up to tell you how you should live your life, but, um, you know, stuff that's I don't, like, just like being of service to other people. Yeah, like, I mean, some of the stuff that I think is kind of the coolest is like community gardens and mutual aid networks and like those kinds of things, because that's like a bunch of people coming together and saying, like, what do we need? What do we yeah. need to do? And let's do it together. Uh, because especially when you engage in mutual aid and community building, it very I mean, and this is like, it kind of reminds you like when you're like, oh, I really want a partner. And then people say like, oh, but if you're looking for one, you're not going to find one. But when you do engage in mutual aid and community building, you will quickly find that there is one 
party that like makes those things more possible, right? So it's like mm-hmm. we want to engage in community building and engage in engage in mutual aid because it's the right thing to do and because people need help. But then also like the icing on that cake is that you will quickly find that there is, you know, one party that's more working for like the top 1% and then there's another one that's really working for everyone else. Congresswoman Sharice Davids, thank you so much for your time. I really did not even get to get to your committee work, which we're going to have to do on our IG live. We're going to have to talk oh, about yeah. voting rights. We're going to have to talk about the, um, about our infrastructure plan. We're going to have to talk about your committee on transportation and infrastructure and you're being on the committee on small business. We're going to talk about that on our IG live. We love you so much. Um, Congresswoman Sharice Davids, your new book is called uh, Sharice's Big Voice, A Native Kid Becomes a Congresswoman. I've really enjoyed this. This is a great start to my day. Thank you for having this I conversation want, with me today. I just want to do it more often. I want to talk to you more often. I love you so I know. much. We should be uh, uh, long distance besties. Ah! <laughs> well, I'm so here for it. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Congresswoman Sharice Davids. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. And if you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, please, and show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Our editor is Andrew Carson, and our transcriptionist is Alita Vunsha. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Emily Bosick. 